This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 16, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Reporters on deadline and policymakers balancing interests don't always have the skills necessary to evaluate the quality of data and the use and abuse of that data. Trevor Butterworth is director of Sense About Science USA and an editor at Stats.org. For the most recent edition of Cato Connects, we discussed good science and his group's effort to improve data analysis for the public good. We want to see a debate about evidence. We want to see evidence in the public realm. Uh, We want to equip people with evidence. We want to equip people with the tools to understand evidence. And then what they do with that is really their business. But we want to start with with the basics, with improving scientific and statistical literacy in society. Uh, And when people make claims, uh, whether they be in government or business or in the media, that people are empowered to ask the see the evidence behind those claims. Uh, as we were talking before we started uh, here live, um, the headline, thousands of planes land safely, is not one you're likely to see. Uh, and that's also true of science research. Something that is novel, something that is new, is something that we are more likely Absolutely. There was a great line by uh, an English journalist, Peregrine Worsthan, who, who once said, what are more true, the advertisements in the newspapers or the news stories? And uh, when it came to things like risks and it came to certainly when it came to planes, uh, plane flights, thousands of planes take off every day and land. But that isn't a news story. Um, and uh, yet that's this sort of the narrative bias that journalism operates under novelty. Now, the problem of looking, thinking about novelty in terms of science is that what's novel in science isn't necessarily true. It needs to be replicated. Uh, uh, it needs to be analyzed. Um, so there's always a break within the scientific community on accepting novelty. But when journalism and science meet, novelty becomes news. And inevitably, the storyline, the dram- dramatic finding, the miracle cure, the the alarm, the sort of the alarmist scare, uh, they become the sort of the lenses that uh, journalists often write these stories. You know, under under understandable deadline pressure, and because those stories are actually readable, as opposed to the technical difficulty of wrestling with data. Uh, one of the a related issue here with respect to how journalists uh, do their jobs, quite often. What is a mere conflict of interest, which is, of course, a problem, mm-hmm. uh, is immediately transposed with a distortion of the data. So in that, in that respect, who is uh, Kevin Fulta and what, uh, why is his story instructive? Uh, so Kevin Fulta is a scientist at the University of Florida, plant, plant scientist, and a, uh, a very sort of public uh, a communicator about the value of uh, genetic modification. And he came under scrutiny by the U.S. Right to Know, which is a nonprofit organization that uses FOIA requests uh, to get emails from scientists for the potential collaboration with industry. Uh, and uh, a trove of such emails were released by the University of Florida. And uh, it appeared that despite having said that he did not accept money from industry. He had, had in fact, taken a $25,000 grant from Monsanto to communicate uh, about the, the, against the myths of um, GM, uh, about uh, surrounding g- uh, genetic modification. And this led to a massive 2,000-plus word story in the New York Times and, uh, and a great deal of uh, sort of agitated 
conversation within both the scientific community and the advocacy community about uh, conflict of interest. And um, what was interesting to me uh, in looking at this uh, was that it was a bit like, you know, sort of being told that, uh, and forgive me for using a soccer metaphor, that Barcelona was playing Real Madrid uh, for the Champions League Cup and then not telling me who won. Um, conflict of interest is an important, and as we're going to talk about later when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry, a really important issue. Uh, but it has to be accompanied by a, what might say the conflict of evidence. Uh, does the evidence, was Falter, what Falter was doing in his research, was it good research? Was it valid research? Uh, were there any problems with that research that might be tied to these affiliations? Well, the best the New York Times came up with was uh, there is no evidence that academic work was compromised, in which case, what's the real truth value of the story? Um, I mean, if we want to talk about, if we want to make better decisions in our lives, surely we should know whether Kevin Falter is a good scientist and did good science. But that was hardly part of the, the equation, and it hasn't really been part of the discussion. Uh, and that's a problem. That's a real problem, because... Um, if he's true, if his work is true, then it should, at some sense, stand alone on the merits of being true or valid or probable. All right. Um, another uh, case that you point to is a, a study that was done on uh, BPA, yeah. which is stands for? Bisphenol A. So bisphenol A is a is used in many different applications, but the most prominent is in the epoxy linings of aluminum cans. And uh, it's there to ensure that uh, the seal uh, uh, it retains its integrity. So cans are often two or three or four part constructions. So the seal can be, um, you know, you don't want uh, pathogens getting in, you want the food in the can to be safe. And when, especially when you have to heat treat it. So there are all sorts of good reasons for the, the chemical to be there. But we've also had a sort of 17-year, 18-year crusade against BPA uh, in which something remarkable happened. Uh, the uh, one government agency claimed that there were, through the research it funded that there were lots of dangers. And then two other government agencies, the EPA and the FDA, uh, funded lots of research to say that there wasn't a problem um, and that, you know, this was safe uh, uh, at the levels you were exposed to through e eating food. Now, what's interesting about uh, this particular study, that, uh, which is one of many one could have used, one I could have cited, uh, is so you get this study came out in, I think, 2013, 2014, uh, and it claimed that exposure to BPA led to breast tumors, uh, breast cancer, in rodents, which is very scary. And of course, that's how it was reported in the press. And one of the researchers said, you know, the science is clear. Uh, the, uh, and this, you know, if we fail to do anything about it, this is just, this is a policy failure at this point. Now, this is, this is, an, in, this is not an industry-funded study. This is a government-funded study. Um, so I began hearing problems from people at the EPA about the statistics. So I got the study, sent the statistics off to a statistician, Stanley Young, who's director of the uh, National Institute of, sorry, assistant director of the National Institute of uh, Statistical Sciences, and said, well, do the statistics show a dose-response relationship? Uh, you know, can you actually make uh, a claim that these tumors uh, were a result of being exposed to BPA? And he said, there is no dose-response relationship, none. 
which is what I had heard from contacts in the EPA and FDA. And they were furious that this blatantly false claim was being treated as causal. So complaints ensue. And the final publication version of the study, so where it says cause, might cause, you know, probable. Uh, they simply just added in a layer of language to take to, to ratchet down the causality. But it didn't, the data didn't support, even the, the data didn't justify this public study ever being published. So, um, so that, or, or, you know, or actually it, it deserved being published, but for showing the opposite, that there was no relationship. Um, and this is an extraordinary example of uh, how, uh, you know, there can be bias on what we, we, you know, we assume that there's this sort of narrative that's out there where don't trust industry, trust independent science, trust government science. But really, we need to look at all the data. We need to look at all the data and treat, treat all sides equally and with equal skepticism. Um, in order to know whether claims are valid or not. Now, one of the uh, problems with a, a lot of research is that uh, something is found to be bad and the policy response might be, we're, we're going to ban it. Yep. And there is no consideration given to unintended consequences. unintended consequences of that ban. Well, one of the things that a lot of people... so. Uh, it's interesting, the FDA and the EPA have fought a stellar campaign to, uh, to sort of show, show that when you do large, multi-generational reproductive toxicity studies, you cannot replicate the claims that BPA are da is dangerous. So they've done an amazing job. Of course, they've largely been ignored by the media, which is a real problem. But the problem is the marketplace will respond to all those scare stories. And what is the probable outcome in this case? You will replace BPA with something else that's less well-tested. So you increase the probability of there being a risk where, in, in fact, previously there was uh, no, no risk or very little risk. Uh, the precautionary principle uh, at work? Yeah. So lorcanide, describe what lorcanide is. Well, lorcanide uh, is an example of the kind of industry bias we, do, we, we really ha have to really address. And this was an antiarrhythmic drug that uh, sort of came out in the early 80s. And there was a study done in 1980 in which uh, they discovered that the people, 49 men who were treated with lorcanide, uh, nine of them uh, developed, uh, uh, nine of them died. Nine of them died. Um, they had heart attacks. Uh, and only one in the placebo group. So this is like, this is a five you know, five, five station, five, this is a major alarm, klaxons going off. But the study was never submitted for publication. Scroll on 12 years, you have uh, what's known as the CAST trial, which was suspended because uh, similar drugs, sim drugs of a similar class were being, uh, uh, were, were leading to patient deaths. And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, 1993, that original 1980 study was published. Uh, there are, I think, quite reasonable estimations that had we known about that study in 1980, maybe, maybe over 100,000 lives in the U.S. might have been saved. So that's the problem of uh, one kind of publication bias, which is you don't publish your study, your, your, your results at all. And so one of the things that we are actually running 
uh, Sense About Science is running and launched just recently uh, is the All Trials campaign, which is a campaign for clinical trial transparency. Uh, and that is harnessing the, the passion of researchers, patients. We had over 60 patient groups and, and, and uh, institutions supporting us when we launched uh, in order to persuade uh, not only the FDA to implement the law on on clinical trial uh, registration and reporting, but to persuade uh, the pharmaceutical industry to do the right thing. Now, you might think I've, I've, that that's a fool's errand, but in fact, there is we, we are seeing there is a social change happening here, and there are progressives uh, at places like Johnson and Johnson and GSK who really do believe and are acting on the beliefs that this data should be shared for the benefit of all, for other researchers to look at. And uh, it's really gratifying to be part of this campaign to, to, to implement this and also then extend it to government studies, NGO studies. We want, well, we think the public should have all the data on the table. Uh, and we think uh, in particular that we need to get statisticians and journalists who are statistically savvy or collaborating with statisticians to ask what's a good experiment, what's a bad experiment, what do the data really say? If you have a question for uh, Trevor Butterworth uh, from Sense About Science USA and stats.org, you can uh, tweet it at me. That's at uh, the hashtag Cato Connects uh, and at C.O. Brown, my Twitter handle. So you talked about a study that was produced in the 80s that was not published for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, and you, you point to uh, Lisa Schwartz and Stephen Wallishan uh, saying, would you trust the results if only half the votes were counted or reported? Imagine if the winner of the election was the one who decided which half the voting was reported. That would be crazy, but that's not where the situation is when trials are not reported. So yeah. what does it mean that uh, all these trials are registered or uh, well, made public? So, so actually, uh, so there are a couple of things. Actually, so, so American taxpayers have funded something that's actually really good. Uh, and that's clinicaltrials.gov. And it's like the, if you can imagine the library of Alexandria reimagined for the 21st century for medicine and, and clinical trials. And anybody in the world can register their trial there uh, and report the summary results, which is what doctors need. They need the summary results. They don't quite need, they don't need individual patient data, which is a whole other issue of privacy and, and complication. Um, and um, the, uh, the, our best estimates are that, you know, 50% uh, of all clinical trials have never been published and their results have not been reported. And that's particularly significant because most of the drugs we use come from this golden, what's considered almost a golden age in drug discovery in the 1990s. Um, if we're missing so much data from those trials, uh, this is the point where we need to know. We need to know uh, are the medicines in current use effective? Are there, are there, is there data that can actually show they could, be, uh, could, be, could have adverse effects that we, we, didn't, we didn't realize? So, um, and, and importantly, and, and what's really interesting from the platform that GSK has built uh, is that researchers want to use that data in novel ways. So of the 70-odd requests for data that GSK had, uh, um, uh, most, the majority, over 66 or so, were to use that data for novel inquiry. Uh, 
that's that's the you know there were four fact checking studies or whatever, but but it was really to improve the quality you know the the amount of data so we can solve problems better, and I think the moment we are at in intellectual history, if I can go to the thirty thousand foot level, uh, is one where we are reimagining uh, a vital component of the Enlightenment, which is share, which was. That, uh, the, the goal to share knowledge for the benefit of mankind. We are seeing the development of all sorts of data collaboratives, citizen science, uh, uh, people wanting to solve problems, connections and collaborations between uh, government, NGOs, and business to actually improve the world. I am incredibly optimistic about that. Uh, but the only way it works is if the data is there and we have the best people for figuring out whether the data is good at the table, which is to say statisticians. And, of course, that's why we're in this collaboration with the American Statistical Association, uh, which is we've, we've created this advisory board. Uh, six statisticians are volunteering their time to help journalists on deadline uh, look at these kinds of studies and say, did the study design actually, was the study design able to answer the question that the scientists wanted to ask? Uh, is the data good? Uh, or is, is this really a waste not only of everybody's time, but taxpayers' money? Is there any conclusion that can be drawn, or even an inference really, that can be drawn about this division between what are called industry studies? and what are called either government or independent studies. Is there anything we can say with clarity well, about those two kinds, of, those two categories of studies? Well, we, we, uh, we can absolutely, we, we, we've seen with uh, the pharmaceutical industry that there is, a, there is publication bias, there's the reluctance to publish results, which is very troubling. But on the other hand, we've also seen within the NIH and within the growth of the research integrity movement that an awful lot of medical research and psychological research, and life sciences in particular, uh, cannot be replicated. You know, that, and there may be many reasons for this, but the NIH themselves, that is, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, said, it's clear that a lot of researchers don't know how to design experiments. These are the experiments, and these are based on studies of government-funded science. So, uh, again, it's a mistake you know, if you only ever talk about motive, you're never going to answer the fundamental question. Is, is, are these claims justified by the research? And this has been called an epidemic of deficient reporting. Yeah. Uh, you point to a perspective piece that is a call for transparent reporting to optimize the predictive value of preclinical research. A, an extraordinary paper. Uh, I mean, for, the, for those of you, the nerds up there, written by Storylanders, uh, uh, a product of a, a workshop uh, at the NIH, and they identify all sorts of problematic, really, really disturbingly problematic uh, aspects, from, from basic failures of randomization uh, to more complex design issues. I was just at the joint statistical meetings in Seattle, which is a sort of conclave of thousands of statisticians. And, you know, I, the, the, you know talking to them, you hear horror stories uh, which, I mean, in the data sense, horror stories, but they could lead to horror stories. And it, it, it's, it's like they have it's a doctor comes to the statistician at a hospital and says, hey, I've done this experiment. Here's all this data. Can you make sense of it for me? And the statistician will go, well, did you randomize? This is a, 
is an actual example. I'm not quoting any names. Uh, and the doctor said, well, I said, did you randomize it? And the, the doctor said, uh, sort of. And what she said was, it's a yes or no answer. If, it's, if you can't say yes, I can do nothing for you. You can't make something statistical out of no data. If the data, you know, data, uh, data not produced with the wrong experiment is just not meaningful. So, and I think there's a great recognition uh, within the statistical community that they need to be involved in study design from the get-go. There needs to be much more collaboration between statisticians and scientists. And I think this is a great thing because it's happening at a moment where you have new techniques and new tools and new insights into that, that can really produce much more reliable knowledge. All right, we have a question here from Michelle Minton. What is the best example of poor science reporting that you've seen in recent years? Oh, dear. Um, I think I, I would have to say overall, if you're talking about a body of work, um, uh, I, I would say BPA is a huge failure. Um, because if you look at it just from the point of view of what, if you're an, an ordinary reader, do you need to know in order to make sense of this story? Well, you kind of need to know uh, what the risk assessments conducted by government say. And we did, you know, I did lots of, uh, lots of looking at th th this. And the kind of key risk assessments were actually done in Europe. Um, they were massive. And they were done every two years. And Europe, and they were operating under the precautionary principle. And yet they found there was no, they, they, they refuted the, the sort of tsunami of alarmism that surrounded this issue. But were they reported? No. I mean, you, the, we actually had totted up the numbers. There were, I think, only in a, in a, in a five-year period, the EFSA risk assessments were only mentioned 6% of stories. And when they were mentioned, they were mentioned by an industry source, so they got the industry framing, even though they weren't industry-funded. So that, to me, was really, you know, that's not fair, guys. Come on. Um, the, there are, of course, there are, one of the other great problems is, of course, nutrition research, which is immensely hard to do uh, and easily politicized. And there are all sorts of claims about, you know, sort of big food corrupting the... We had one up recently about Coca-Cola corrupting the evidence. And, and they cited, for instance, this study that appeared in PLOS uh, uh, Medicine, which claimed that uh, there was, uh, you know, there was concrete evidence of bias. But actually, when you looked at that study, you found the researchers left out lots of key things, like studies not funded by industry, which didn't find an association. And it really became, and I wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review on this, because it really, you know, we talk about, oh, the need for warning lab labels on everything. Um, you know, a lot of research should come with a warning label, and that is you need to be statistically savvy to understand whether this says what it says it is. So uh, within nutrition, which is a, a broad area, we've heard a lot of, we've, at least in the 90s and 2000s, we heard a lot about cholesterol. Oh, uh, yes. So, I, so look, let, let me ask yeah. you, as related to that, uh, how culpable are federal agencies when it comes to people who make decisions based upon uh, data that turns out to be deeply flawed? Well, it's interesting. I reviewed the big fat surprise, Nina Teicholz's book on the whole sort of dietary fat issue for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I, I think the, the blame there, uh, I mean, it's really extraordinary series of, of uh, 
uh, events that lead to led to you know sort of the dietary guide recommendations. And Gary Taubes has written about this. Yeah, as well yeah, yeah. Um, and um, the uh, and the the I, I actually think the problem, sadly, was with government, not so much the agencies, um, because the the people writing, you know, again. This whole issue played to very con- deep concerns about, you know, the epidemic of heart attacks in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had uh, Ansel Keys was a charismatic researcher who did, who, you know, was, was able to explain why did Eisenhower get a, uh, you know, it's because he was eating too much steak. Um, and, uh, why, you know, Eisenhower had a heart attack. And, and slowly a media narrative began. And we all look for, you know, there's, a, there's, there's some very interesting research going on into how we communicate and talk about science. Dan Kahan at Yale uh, has done really interesting stuff, really, really interesting stuff. And he's really a, quite a character, really entertaining to uh, listen to talk, you listen to. Um, and, um, but, you know, he, you know, we talk about all the cognitive shortcuts that we make um, that, you know, we tend to, you know, if, 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 um, if my friend who is, I think is very smart tells me that, oh, I read, you know, I did the, read this and read that, you know, we all tend to look for the shortest possible explanation for what we should do because really, who ne- you cannot become an expert in these fields. Um, but unfortunately, that shortcuts the hard work of, of taking things apart. And so one of the things, you know, we, I, we, Stents About Science, want to see statistics and statisticians really involved in all of these debates because the insight they, you know, Florence Nightingale said statistics was the most important science in the world. And she was right. So which, uh, in terms of media outlets, of, of course, I mean, I was a reporter for many mm-hmm. years, so I, I can say, uh, I'm allowed to say, that reporters work very hard, mm-hmm. but reporters can be lazy mm. when it comes to uh, meeting deadlines and the pressures that they face. So what are some things that, that you'd say to reporters, this is the most basic thing you need to be doing in terms of making sure that your story right. is not proven to be false I, I look a I, week, a month, a year, five years. Later. I I was uh, um, I was a science writer for Newsweek for a while, and and I share this challenge. I mean, you've got if you're lucky, you have twelve or twenty four hours to put together a story with a conflicting viewpoint, uh, with a sexy title, and then you have you know you're try, you you have editors trying to cut back your words, and then you end up with a piece that's shorter than the press release about the study. Uh, to begin with, uh, and which is so you have no meaningful space in which to raise any of these questions. Um, my view is that, well, what I see, I, I, again, I'm a very hopeful person. I, I went to Columbia Journalism School. I've witnessed the birth and, of the Internet and the, the sort of the endless tragedy of, of print media uh, uh, trying to survive in straightened economic times. But I have great, I have absolutely great hope for the future. I think publications like uh, uh, 538, um, Vox, Julia Beluz is doing an apps is the a must read reporter on the scientific integrity beat, and she and she's really good at explaining complex topics. We had BuzzFeed do a three and a half thousand word piece uh, on deworming. Now you might think, well, deworming. Why do I want to read about that? But actually, Ben Goldacre, who founded the All Trials campaign, uh, made this absolutely compelling argument for why for how to understand the importance of evidence in public policy. 
And they gave him three and a half thousand words for that. That is the kind of revolutionary stuff I want to see. And I want to see journalists collaborate when they can with statisticians to, uh, to ask basic questions. Does this data look good for you, to you? Or what should I be aware of? And we've had plenty of experience of that happening. And when journalists actually get a chance to sit down and talk about their stories through the num, you know, with numbers, you know, talk about the numbers, how to think about this statistically and mathematically and scientifically, uh, usually it's a great experience. They, they come out jazzed, energized. And so I want to see editors give the reporters more time to do science stories. Uh, that's the, that, uh, so that they can, they can develop these relationships and use these services to, to provide the kind of nuanced uh, and analytically credible journalism that, of all people, Joseph Pulitzer said they should be, you know, he was a huge fan of statistics. So, uh, and he said, you can find truth there if you know where, how to get it. Um, well, you know what? Not everybody can be a Nate Silver uh, in journalism, uh, but we want to provide everybody with an access to a Nate Silver. All right. Arthur Lipper has a question. How much duplication of research should be permitted using government funds? Do you mean duplication or replication? I mean, I think we need, I think we need, to, we need to take replication. We need to take negative studies seriously in the sense that there's got to be more attention paid to null results, results that didn't find anything. They're just as valuable as we need. But we need, we need more replication. We have to. That's the basis of science. It's not sexy. But at the same time, if the kind of procedures that, you know, Francis Collins is trying to be implemented. I mean, the NIH has been doing all sorts of, of kind of uh, projects to try and figure out, solve these problems. If we can get statisticians and scientists collaborating from the get-go, before, so what do you want, what do you want to know? Uh, we can improve the efficiency of science. And I think that's, if there's one lesson any, any person on Capitol Hill would take away from, that, from, from this talk, that would be the lesson. There are biases everywhere. We mm -hmm. all have our, our biases. I mean, not me, of course, but <laughs> everyone else yeah. does. Has, yeah. has, everybody has biases. So when it comes to the bias of academia, mm. it seems to be, again, if it's new, if it's counterintuitive, if it goes against a body of research, and if it uh, is something that will then kick off more research. Well, that's that the, the, the last thing is, cr is critical. And, and it really does. We, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, in the, all the web responses to the Kevin Falter incident, there were actually some really uh, interesting commentary. And, and I think one I'd like to draw readers' attention to is really smart PhD research, PhD student at Cornell, Kevin Klatt. He has a blog, NutriEvolve. And he had a really, really interesting uh, uh, commentary on the challenge of getting funding research, you know, funding for research, uh, especially in a field like nutrition, which is not as well-funded, say, as cancer research. And uh, uh, an out one of the conversations we need to have is, is there a better way of funding science? Can we fund it uh, uh, in, a, in, in a way that makes it, that allows blue sky thinking? I mean, uh, you know, some of the greatest minds uh, in our country today, uh, and I, I think one of the ones that recently impressed me so much, Arthur Toga, who, who's a, a neuroscientist, and, and he's a, he runs an amazing project out, uh, out at UCLA. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, he made this passionate plea to fund blue sky think, you know, research, that it can't be, there can't be this manic rush 
to bring in funding so that the English department gets, you know, or the university grounds gets 40 percent of every government grant. I mean, there is a problem here in that we're incentivizing scientists uh, to uh, to produce positive results rather than true results or probable results. Uh, and that's a, that's a real problem. That academia has to, that there are problems with, with academia. All right. Pat Michaels asks, what do you think about, quote, anatomy of an epidemic uh, in regards to stats on psychotropics? <laughs> um, uh, that's, um, that's an interesting and complex question that I think to answer comprehensively would have required me to do much more research in advance, and I'm not going to BS my way <laughs> on that. But there's going to be some really interesting, uh, there's an embargoed uh, paper that's going to be out on Wednesday that is very, very interesting. And um, there is also, yeah, that, that's got, that actually plays to this. And I think we need to be really concerned about, certainly in psychology, uh, the reproducibility of studies. Um, so, um, so again, uh, and, and, you know, there's a great, Brian Nosek at, uh, in Virginia has been doing great work on, on trying to, you know, sort of ensure greater uh, research integrity in psychology. So, um, I mean, this is the research integrity field is, is, is it's not in its infancy, uh, but it's not quite in at middle school yet. Um, but I think it's the most interesting movement in science today. Uh, it, people like Johnny Unidas at Stanford, uh, uh, who's, uh, who's the most charming person you'd ever meet, are actually, they're building a, a new scientific revolution. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, the, the downstream effects of this, I hope, will be able to have much more informed conversations about all of these issues, uh, but also more solutions. Trevor Butterworth is director of Sense About Science USA. If you have an iOS device, you can download Cato Connects and other Cato programs. The app is Cato Audio in the App Store.